You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 88 of the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome, everybody. Today we are discussing teeth. Teeth? I have a few of those. Toofers. Toofers. <laughs> we, we are discussing the evolution and anatomy of teeth in this episode. A very important paleontological topic. Yeah, teeth are super weird because they are extremely common. They're almost every group of vertebrates has them. Yep. And every group of vertebrates had them yep. <laughs> at one point, <laughs> effectively. And because of that, they're super diverse, lots of weird features that they've developed over that time. So in this episode, we're going to look at what is a tooth, uh, actually dissect a tooth, talk about some of its diversity in that anatomy, and then go over what we know or what we think we know or what we think might be the origins <laughs> of teeth. <laughs> and then we'll discuss... How do we, you know, define a tooth? Like, because there are so many different kinds, we actually have a list of definitions. Right, right. What is what are the comparisons of different kinds mm -hmm. of teeth? How do they fit into the evolutionary story? If, and if ecological I were, story. Yeah, yeah. If I were to give you a tooth, and you were a tooth scientist, what would be the terms you'd list to describe said tooth? Yeah. And well, then we'll talk a little bit about why teeth are such a big deal. I, you know, it occurs to me, I, it might be, and maybe a super fan out there can tell us, we have probably mentioned teeth in every episode of the podcast. Oh, I would be surprised if it didn't come up somehow. <laughs> if there's someone out there who has been tracking all of the episodes of the podcast, yes. let us know. L listen through all of them, and in five months, when you're done, <laughs> let us know if we've mentioned teeth in every episode. <laughs> so, we will be discussing this awesome topic because it was requested. Oh, you don't say. Yeah, it was requested by a few of our listeners, Michael, as well as our patrons, Renee, Lauren, and Mark Lee's wife. Oh, well, thanks, everybody, and Mark Lee's wife. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, everyone. This is a fun topic. I'm excited to get into it. But first, announcements. Our first announcement, as usual, is we have some new patrons because we have a Patreon. Oh, we do. And, and people support us, get extra goodies, don't yes, they? Yes, they do. And if you support us at that, certain level will say your name out loud on the podcast. Care to give us an example? I think I might be able to. How does Julian, Horst, Dylan, Alex, and Avery Likes Necromancy treat you? <laughs> <That> treats <laughs> me real good. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you so much, everyone. <laughs> we also have a Zazzle store that... We do, with merch. With merch that partially supports us, but also provides our fans with a way to get stuff with our logo and name on it's it swag swag paraphernalia <laughs> as the kids call it so if you would like to go check out our zazzle store the links are in all our descriptions and blog posts we have recently new merch on there in case you hadn't heard yeah with awesome art by our friend rob soto really awesome art really cool so check it out get yourself a mug or a shirt or a button or something with these just there's the, you can get the croc one you can get the snake one or you can split the difference and get the cartoony one with both of them. <laughs> and if you feel so inclined, post a picture because we love getting to see. Oh, absolutely.
absolutely. people's pictures of their stuff. That's Show really us cool. that you have our merch. We love it. I get excited every time. <laughs> We've also been doing some special programs recently. Mm-hmm. We, by the time this comes out, we will have just finished a run of live chat. Yes, we've been doing YouTube live videos with some of our colleagues slash friends slash experts on topics we've discussed. And we've wrapped it up recently, but you can go check those out. They're still up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And we've put the audio up here on the podcast. And if you like it and would like to hear more, let us know. We're finished for now, but if people tell us that they want to hear more, we can always do more. Most definitely. And with that, we can wrap up our announcements and actual uh, decently timed announcements for once. Oh, hey, look at us. We're getting better. (laughs) 88 episodes in. (laughs) And move on to section one, the news. Oh, boy. Every episode, we like to cover a little bit of the recent news Articles, publications, announcements in science, evolutionary, paleontological, and anything else that catches our notice. And share it with you so that we can all stay up to date with that their scientific world. David, would you like to start us off? You know, I would. And today I have chosen uh, the, uh, the little discussed subject of dinosaurs. You know... We, they really just don't get a fair shake, dude. Have you the, heard about them? There's, they've been in the news a couple times recently. Specifically, a new study that came out recently that examines the role of limb length and proportion in dinosaurs because, foreshadowing, long legs meant different things in different dinosaurs. Oh, interesting. Let's dive in. This is research by Alexander DeKechi et al. in the journal PLOS One, and we will link to an article in Live Science by Mindy Weisberger. Even though my, my, my notes here say Wessieberger, which is not uh, the person's name. That is a typo. <laughs> Theropod dinosaurs are the typically two-legged carnivorous, your T-Rex, your Velociraptor, Allosaurus, Spinosaurus, the big, to small to very large, yeah, two-legged, Big back-legged, short-front-armed, relatively toothy-mouthed, usually. There, hey, teeth. There are <laughs> a lot of studies that have been done on the locomotion of theropod dinosaurs. How did they move? A lot of times the question is asking how fast did they move? Yeah. Because speed for a predator is a major factor. It, it gives us a big indication of whether you were chasing, ambushing, or some mixture of the two. And indeed, for a long time, there's been this general idea that longer legs means faster speed. Makes sense. Which we see that trend among lots of living animals. and <laughs> Among people. Among people. <laughs> That's true. Babies can't run very well. <laughs> then, and, and so that's sort of been this running understanding. So this new study sought to ask the question, what else might be re- related to that limb length? Is it all about speed? So what they did is they gathered up information from 93 specimens. Wow of 71 different theropod species, ranging from things the size of a house cat to things the size of an elephant, right? We're talking tiny little small bird things all the way up to T-Rex and friends, and they measured a bunch of things. Some classic stuff like the limb length and proportions, the back legs, also what's understood about their posture, their body mass. Important. And they did some calculations to try to understand for each specimen what would we estimate their top running speed would be, but also their energetic cost of movement. Uh How much energy does it take to move this body around? And what they found is that 
the general trend of longer legs means you have a faster top speed is true. That holds up for small to medium-sized theropods. Okay. But once you get to theropods that are over a thousand kilograms, so now we're in the, you're measuring weight in tons. Yeah. Maximum speed loses that correlation to the limb, the length of the limb and the limb proportions. And indeed, some of those big fellas can actually be slower than the smaller ones because now you're super heavy. Yeah. Now it takes a lot more work to actually move you around. What they found instead is that in the bigger theropods, longer back legs, those lengthy limb proportions, correlated better with energy efficiency in your movement. Okay. Not just at top speed, but while moving around at low speeds. That big theropods were really good at walking. Yeah. Yeah, it's more efficient stepping than just faster. Yeah, you are... And if you think about it, and this is a point they make in the paper, most predators aren't running very often. No. You spend most of your time prowling, walking around, looking for things. Foraging yes. is the term that, they, that they're using for it. It's in between hunts. <laughs> you have to actually find a thing to eat. Yeah, it's there's not many predators that can just uh, show up to where food is guaranteed. Right. <laughs> like, you have to go searching for it. It's uh, anteaters. And if, yeah. <laughs> and if you can maximize your energy cost during that searching phase, then yeah, you have a great competitive advantage against other predators. Well, and it, it makes sense if you compare it to other big predators. Like I'm thinking grizzly bears that have, you know, massive oh, yeah. ranges and territories. And they're not, like they are fast. Grizzly bears are scary fast for how big they are. But they're not usually trucking around. They're just walking as they're looking for, you know, either plants to forage on or dead things. Yeah, I'm or, thinking uh, polar bears as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Just exactly. wandering the wastes. And so if you're a giant, if you're a, a truly giant predator, yep. <laughs> it makes sense that you probably have a very similar scenario of trying to make sure other predators aren't pushing in on your territory and looking for food. So, yeah, you got to be ready to walk a few miles if <laughs> Potentially every day. Yeah. And that's actually really cool. There are two sort of really interesting takeaways that that they got out of this that I think are really cool. One is that it suggests, it shows that long legs are an adaptation that we see commonly across theropods, but not always for the same reason. Yeah. If you're smaller, you not only have to chase prey, you have to evade predators. <laughs> if you are a small to medium size, right, think today, you know, we're talking like weasel up to coyote size. It's not just important for you to chase rabbits. You also have to run away from wolves. Yeah, exactly. Like ch- fleeing means that r- you have a double whammy of selective pressure for running. If you're big, well, you you rarely ever have to run. You just have to be fast enough for a, for a little bit. Feed yourself. Yeah, or sneaky enough. Yes. And then the other thing, of course, is this brings up the obvious question. If someone, if longer legs means you're better at the thing, who is the best at it? Yes, because we are humans and there must always be a best. There must always be a best. <laughs> well, I don't know. I didn't, I don't remember if the chart identified a fastest theropod. It probably did, but I didn't notice it. But they do discuss that the among giant theropods, the longest, the lankiest legs, and thus the most efficient walkers were tyrannosaurs. 
that this seems to probably have been one of the many things that made T-Rex and Friends so successful is that the way that the uh, a lot of the news articles have been doing it and the way that I, I wrote in my title when I wrote the press release for this one, is not, I, I can be clever too, is that they were champion walkers or as I've seen, not my words, marathon walkers. Yeah. <laughs> or I think power walker yes. I've seen in a couple places. <laughs> yeah. When it's, I like this for two reasons as well. Uh, in addition, one, it is a nice reminder that physics doesn't scale to all sizes. Yes. What works at 100 pounds does not work at 10,000 pounds. Yeah. It, well, it's the reason that when you watch old movies and they have scale models of a dam breaking, go watch the original Superman. Uh, mm-hmm. You can tell. It's like, yeah, that water's tiny. Yeah. How can you tell? Because it's moving wrong. Yeah, it's moving the way tiny water moves. Yeah, it's not moving like big water because things physics does not scale to the very small or the very big usually. Big yeah. water, you'll notice we're using land before time terms. Yes. <laughs> Great big water. <laughs> and that that applies to animals. You know, a, a human, a wolf, and a coyote, yeah, we're all going to move the same way even though our weights might be wildly different. Mm-hmm. But we're in the same size class. We're in the same general size range. But when you go to an elephant or a mouse, like or a, a squirrel, I just watched a video not too long ago. I knew ants were in this category, but squirrels are in the category of animal that can fall from any height because they can create <laughs> enough air resistance to just not get hurt. They can also run run vertically. Yeah. <laughs> up and down trees. <laughs> so it's like, physic. you can't just assume that what works for one example you can then apply you have to take into the fact that they are physically interacting with the world differently and it's cool because just if just because t-rex and friends may not be fast to those long legs good walking is also a hunting strategy absolutely like early humans and some groups of people today are known to walk their prey down oh yeah wolves do that and so it's a very canid strategy to yeah do. so like you could picture potentially a, a tyrannosaurus isolating a, a triceratops and getting it away from the herd and then just never letting it get back to the herd for a day and just chasing just slowly Following walking it. it like a like a horror movie character yeah. <laughs> every time the triceratops looks back yeah every time he breathes walking. he comes around the corner <laughs> <laughs> so this is it's a cool study about adaptation for differing purposes based on your physical constraints, which is a pretty cool thing. Very cool. Well, my news article is also kind of about dinosaurs, but it's studying gharials, which I think makes it all better. Not dinosaurs? Uh, Not technically studying dinosaurs, but it's being used in application to dinosaurs. So it's only really kind of another news article about dinosaurs. Okay, but mostly it's a news article about crocodilians. Yeah, which I... Don't think anyone would complain about having another no, one of those. No, no, no one would. No one would complain. <laughs> yes, we're, we're, we are not doubling up on dinosaurs, nor am I following my trope. <laughs> um, this is a study on gharials, which are the very skinny snout Indian crocodilians, uh, very endangered, that is looking at their sexual dimorphism to see how it might apply to identifying that in dinosaurs. Okay. This is research by David Hone et al. in Pierre J. And the article is by Brooks Hayes in UPI. So sexual dimorphism, we've discussed on the podcasts before, yep, is 
often considered to be very difficult to identify in the fossil record. Right. So we're talking about physical traits that differ between males and females Mm -hmm. of the same species. But it has been suggested or identified in certain studies for certain dinosaurs. This study is trying to look at, yeah, but can we really? Right. Are the, because we mentioned this in the last, uh, in Ceratopsians 87, uh, episode 87, that is, that there have been some suggestions like protoceratops that have been challenged. Are we actually seeing sexual dimorphism or are we getting confused by something? Exactly. So what they did is they looked at specimens of gharial to see if they could identify sexual dimorphism, male-female, if they could identify the skeletal specimens when they already had the right answer. So could they actually get it right by looking at a known animal who displays sexual dimorphism? Crocodilians all are sexually dimorphic, uh, but mostly in the fact that males are ridiculously bigger than female, like twice the weight uh, (laughs) and a third extra the length. Sometimes almost double the length. So they are very sexually dimorphic, but when they're similar sized, most of them look the same. Like there has been stuff noticed in like the femur and postcranial skeletal stuff. If you see a male and female alligator, they're both five feet. They're just alligators. Yeah. Uh, but once you have a 12 foot male and a eight foot female, that's great. Well, now, you know, gharials are the exception in the fact that males have something called the gara, which is a bulb on the end of the snout. It's how they get their name, Gariel. Oh, interesting. It's, uh, I believe it's Indian for pot, or it, it's uh, a, the term means pot. And they have this big bulb on the end of their snout that's fleshy with a bony interior uh, that comes off of the nasal bone, I believe. The narial fossa is the name of the a hollow bone there. And so they actually have skeletal features that should be able to identify male-female. So they went and looked at specimens. The article said they analyzed dozens of skulls from mostly museum collections and went to see if they could identify and then check their answers. And the answer was most of the time, no, or it was very difficult. Even though they knew already, like they, they knew the answer and they were trying to prove the answer. Yeah, like they, they had the answer sheet over here and they went, all right, can I identify? I think it's this one. And Either they uh, weren't getting it right and then or... They were checking themselves against... I yeah, gotcha, I gotcha. They weren't able to confirm male-female by looking at them even, and then confirm that they had gotten it right. Interesting. And part of this was because the narial fossa can be distinguished if it's a very well-preserved skull, but if it's less well-preserved, it might be degraded. And what this basically suggested to them is that if we can't do this with a modern species that we had the right answers for, but still were struggling to visually identify, then we're not likely to be able to do it unless we have a very good example with dinosaurs. Yeah, that'd be hard to do it with partial remains. Exactly. Especially. That unless you have a particularly good specimen and also particularly distinct male-female sexual dimorphism, they basically are kind of saying, yeah, we don't think we really can. This is a very important kind of study because, you know, we, we argue back and forth about individual species. Of, mm-hmm. Oh, yes or no. Or maybe this one is kind of taking that approach of go, hey, be extra cautious about all of them. Yes. Just in as general. A, gen- a general statement. 
be anytime you're trying to do it, look at what we did and see how evenly it compares because we were duped and that you might be duped by the same things. And so that's exactly what they're saying is not so much that those are those studies are wrong, but that they used an example of a study on T-Rex that suggested females are larger than males. Mm-hmm. And this was based off of 25 partial specimens. And they were saying that looking at that study and using the results from their study, that is not enough to give a solid answer. Yeah. That if we were using nice museum collection specimens and we weren't able to identify it, 25 broken specimens is not enough or good enough specimens to answer that question. So yeah, they're basically saying, hey, maybe just take it easy (laughs) is kind of the idea. Yeah, these kinds of studies are, they're they're kind that at first thought seem disappointing. Mm -hmm. That like, oh, we found out you can't do the thing. But that's extremely valuable for us to know either, hey, here's a thing we that you have to be real careful about all these things to refine it, to check your accuracy. Or it's, hey, we can't do this, so find an alternate method. Yes, exactly. Like Which will lead the push for hopefully finding something else. Yeah, observing just the bones was not enough. So maybe stop pursuing that path, start pursuing another. Right, look at histology or something, and maybe you'll find something cool there. Hopefully. Well, that's an exciting stuff. Once again, living animals comparing to fossil stuff, always a fun thing. Yeah. Hey, speaking of reptiles and living animals, my next study is on reptiles, but it has no fossils in it at all. But it is a study about evolutionary processes. And and, and indeed, the impacts of short-lived dramatic events on long-term evolution. All right, I'll allow it then. Oh, stay tuned. This is research by Colin Donahue et al. in the journal PNAS, and there we'll link to an article in the New York Times by Joshua Sokol. If you follow the science e-news, you may recall that two years ago, in 2018, there was a study published of anoles, so little lizards, in the Caribbean that involved how the anoles react to hurricanes. Specifically, this was a team that was studying anoles and had recently finished up a survey of the anoles in a number of islands down there in 2017 when two back-to-back hurricanes hit the islands. And what they noticed is that they returned and the lizards had kind of diminished, but the ones that they found, their toes followed an unusual pattern. So anoles have these pads on their toes that are very grippy. And what they found is after the hurricanes had passed, most of the anoles they found had bigger toe pads. And this led to a study that had these very evocative videos of anoles' experimental conditions under strong winds, holding on to a pole with their little grippy hands, trying not to get blown away. <laughs> no anoles were harmed in the <laughs> the experiment, but it was showing that when put under pressure of strong winds, they will grip stuff and try to hold on. So they suggested that those big toe pads might be... a factor in which anoles survive hurricane force winds. Either they get blown away or blown into a tree and and die or something like that. This study sought to sort of ask the question, how long does that effect last? Yes. How quickly do they rebound? Does it, 
all right, you wiped out a bunch of vanillas, and then they return back to sort of their normal population dynamic, their their normal feature average. Yeah, with the same number of big, medium, and small topads as was before. So first, they found that returning to the same populations that they had been studying before the two hurricanes, Irma and Maria, they found that even in the next generation, the large topad size stuck around. That it wasn't overruled by other selective factors in the passing down of those traits. The offspring of those survivors had bigger topads. And then they surveyed a bunch of data. Looking through museum specimens, they surveyed 12 island populations of brown anoles and a total of 188 species of anoles throughout the Neotropics. Wow. Islands, continent, uh, I believe there were places across South, uh, northern South America and Central America, the Caribbean. Basically, let's get an idea of what the toes look like on as many lizards as we can. And then they compared it with 70 years of hurricane data. Cool. And what they found is a very clear trend. Lizards that live on islands that get hit by hurricanes tend to show larger topads than the ones on islands where the hurricanes miss or the continents. And the more frequently an island is hit by hurricanes in the past, you know, over this data set, the more likely the lizards are to have larger topads. Cool. And what's really interesting about this is that it suggests that these... A hurricane is such a quick event. Mm -hmm. It's such... It's it's a really... That's like a one-day thing that these animals are having to put up with. Yeah, at at worst, typically it's a bad weekend. (laughs) Right, yeah, exactly. Every now and then, maybe. Or maybe a couple times a year, and then you wait a whole while. But it is having long-term impacts on the physical features... Of these populations of lizard. That's a, a important note, I think, to make that to affect a population's evolution, it doesn't have to be something consistent or, you know, like, like all-encompassing. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be that the whole island is always windy all the time. Right, it doesn't have to be a day-to-day thing. Yeah, it can be something that is momentarily momentary and not just that, but brief, <laughs> like... Yes. Actually, it's kind of like thinking about how droughts can affect things where like the seasonal droughts in Africa affect the way the animals behave and act. But those things last for months. Right. Something that lasts a few days but is regular enough can have similar effects. Yeah. And, and it makes them wonder. So they, they posit in their study, are we going to find the same sort of effects elsewhere? Are there plants that are impacted this way and insects? Are there features we would see in other island organisms that are selected for by these short-lived but dramatic extreme events? Mm -hmm. And for me, it makes me wonder what features we might see in the fossil record. Yeah. That you would go, oh, well, they had this feature so that they could find their prey or so that they could blah, blah. And no, it's because a volcano went off. Ten years earlier. Yeah. And that's how they that's how they ended up. Yes. And that's the other thing that's interesting about it is that if it's if events like that can have such long lasting effects, you could get these whole populations with a weird feature that's no longer really important and just has not averaged back out right, right. into the the typical spread of the feature. Right, the beforehand, the bell curve. Yeah, exactly. 
And so, yeah, you could get a, a weird signal in your evolutionary history for a group that surpri- lasts a surprising amount of time and was for this one little moment. Yep. It yep. also makes me wonder that if with things getting warmer and storms getting more extreme, are we just going to get a knolls that are mostly towpad? And they also <laughs> mentioned that. They said that climate's changing and storms are, are expected to continue worsening uh, in a number of ways. How is that going to affect island evolution? They're just going to look like Mickey Mouse gloves and just (laughs) (laughs) just big round toes. They're going to start pulling trees down. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, it's a a fascinating study. I like that one. Well, speaking of climate stuff, my next news deals with that ever-classic debate of the megafaunal extinction. Ooh, at the end of the Pleistocene? Yeah. From episode 25? Indeed. Was it climate or humans that wiped out all those big, cool mammals and other megafauna? Oh, well, tell me more. So this is a study about Australian megafauna that seems to indicate it was climate. Okay. This is research by Scott Hocknell et al. in Nature Communications. And the article is by Scott Hocknell et al. in The Conversation. All right. (laughs) And so this... Research was studying fossils from a fossil locality in Australia called South Walker Creek Mine and identified a whole bunch of cool animals from the site and was able to date the site to between 60,000 to 40,000 years old. And the animals they found there included a number of kinds of megafauna, some famous ones like the giant monitor. Hey. Yep. We have also a Komodo dragon-sized monitor there as well. Oh, so uh, we have a giant monitor lizard and a super giant monitor yes, lizard. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's Varanus priscus for anyone who's yes. wondering. Yeah, that is the big famous 20-foot. <laughs> Formerly megalania. Yes. It also has some crocs, uh, both aquatic and terrestrial. Neat. And then it has some weird marsupials. It's got diprotodon, the giant wombat-like mega marsupial and the giant or a giant kangaroo yeah so we're, we know there are giant kangaroos in australia uh, from the fossil record this one is yet to be named and is so far according to the article the largest yet found cool so even bigger than the big ones we knew of before king kangaroo <laughs> yes the, the kangaroozilla some kind of strange bear sloth marsupial is how it described it. Sure. There. Absolutely. A lot of these haven't been named yet. So yeah. <laughs> a lot of these may end up being new species, they say. And then we have some, you know, more well-known but still large animals. You have Thylacoleo, the marsupial predator. Yeah, the marsupial quote-unquote lion. Yeah. And then some modern groups are there. The red kangaroo and saltwater crocodile were there. So lots of big animals. 13 species total. Uh, The emu is also found there. And the information that this gave them was important because of the date range. 60,000 to 40,000 overlaps with when humans had arrived at Australia. Sure does. Which means that for about 15 to 20,000 years, these big animals were seemingly doing fine at the same time humans were in Australia. Ooh. And fifteen to twenty thousand is not a small amount of time. No, that's plenty of time for humans to mess everything. Exactly. Up. Yes. <laughs> so this 
indicates to them it doesn't seem like it's humans. This this leans things toward climate. Right. That humans showed up within that period. The animal, the big, the megafauna were th- continued to seemingly do okay for a while and then the extinction. Yep. About 40,000 years ago when things coincided with regional changes in water availability, vegetation, and fire frequency. Yep. Uh, so they, this study is saying that it's probably climate, not people, as far as that debate goes. Right, right, right. Interesting. I'm always interested in these because there is this, you know, climate and human activity are not wholly unrelated. No. And so you mentioned fire regimes. i like, that is a thing that you could imagine that in a climate that encourages worse fires, a species that causes fires, yeah, which we do, could then have a, an increased impact on the world. And that get, starts getting to a level of detail that is very difficult to parse out. Well, it's, it's hard to answer those questions when you aren't able to report incidents. Right, right. You know, my neighbor yep. started a fire again <laughs> and burned down a, a giant monitor. Right. I remember having a, a very brief discussion with a visitor at the museum once, many years ago, who was trying to make the point to me that a warming climate is good because in the if you look at the fossil record, warming climate always means more diversity and you don't have extinctions when it gets warmer. And I said, that's not true the end of the Pleistocene, mm-hmm. it got warmer and you had an extinction. Uh, now, th- this was, he, he was making a climate change argument, but his response, like he had a, a real quick and he said, well, was that, and he said, oh, but I've heard that that's debated. Was it climate or humans? And I said, you're right, there is a debate. And he said, yeah, humans, it, it got warmer, they needed somewhere to go. And I said, yes, <laughs> it got warmer. And that led to changes that led to the, extinctions yes they're not mutually exclusive mm-hmm. and so it's at some level it's not surprising to me that in some places and in some cases it's hard to parse out because yeah they're they are tied together yeah this situation also opens up some intriguing questions because if we are to take it at face value that it wasn't people mm-hmm. but the climate and that indeed mega fauna were for at least the better part of 20,000 years, doing pretty much fine with people there, how were people living with these big things? Right. Now, if we were coexisting and not wiping out, how were we coexisting? <laughs> and yeah. what were our strategies? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? which ones were we hunting and which ones were we running from? <laughs> Who was wiping out whom? <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting results yeah some cool new stuff and that's going to be our last bit of news oh yeah for more on the pleistocene megafaunal extinctions and australia we, we've touched on all that in episodes 25 and 50 go check it out and now we're going to bring the news section to a close ending so that we can talk a bit about teeth and what exactly is a tooth and how maybe they might have come to be Let's learn together. (music) 
So what is a tooth? And whenever I ask that question, that kind of question here on the podcast, with something as familiar as a tooth, it always feels kind of silly. But there actually are very specific features and definitions for what a tooth is. Do tell. It's not just a thing in your mouth. It is specifically a hardened, typically skeletal structure in your mouth or around the pharynx region, which is the upper back of your throat. Yes. So you can have teeth in other places than just on the jaw. Right. We have our teeth along the outer rim, basically, Mm -hmm. of our jaws. But lots of animals have them in a variety of places in and around the mouthful region. Yep. The oral pharyngeal region, which is a term that you'll become familiar with because that's a very important feature to the potential evolution. That's what I said. The mouthful region. (laughs) (laughs) So what is a tooth? What makes up a tooth? Well, teeth are skeletal. They grow as you're developing, typically, at least for us mammals, in the bone. And they are a feature of vertebrates. So backboned animals. Fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals. Exactly. We are the only ones who have true teeth. Ah. Other animals have tooth-like structures. Leeches and things like that have toothy parts. But they usually aren't made out of the same thing. So they are a tooth in name alone. Right. They're a tooth the same way that a saw has teeth. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a thing that's like teeth. Mm -hmm. And it's doing the same thing as teeth. A toothed comb is not... It's... it's, They are similar structures. That's not to say there aren't some that come real close, (laughs) especially in the fossil record. And that there aren't probably areas where that hard definition gets blurred. But for the most part, it's a vertebrate feature. We are the only ones who have true teeth. And our teeth are typically made out of three main materials that each have a very different role to play in the tooth. These materials are also associated with the main parts of the tooth. So your parts of the teeth and the materials they're made out of, we start top down. At the top, you have the crown. The crown of the tooth is the part you can see when you look in your mouth. Right. The part that sticks out above the gums. Yep. That's It's on top, so it's the crown. And it is a typically, in most animals, a covering of enamel. Now, enamel is one of the m- most awesome yeah. <laughs> materials <laughs> in any animal's body. It's a cool tissue. Enamel is a mostly mineralized, non-cellular, acellular yep. no <laughs> material... Cells material that is both the hardest and heaviest material in the vertebrate body. Any vertebrate body. Yeah, that's got the hardest job. (laughs) It's there to protect the surface of your teeth from cracking, abrasion, and to take the force of what you're using your teeth for. It's armor. That is your outer surface. It's the part that we're always so worried about getting damaged from cavities and grinding your teeth or biting something too hard because since it is acellular, when the enamel's laid down while you're developing, it's laid down by ameloblasts, which are cells that put down the mineral structure and then die. Yeah, so they it can, they can't repair it. Yeah, so we don't have any extra enamel building cells to go in and fix them. That's not true for the rest of the tooth. So the outer surface is really the part we're concerned with. The inner surface can heal itself. 
your inner core of the tooth is made out of dentine for the most part. And there are different kinds of dentine, but dentine is the living part of the tooth. Yeah, the living tissue inside. Yes, it's softer than enamel, and it is fed by roots and nerves and blood vessels that mean it can actually rebuild itself. This is the main chunk, the main intersection of the tooth. Then you also have the pulp of the tooth, which is what feeds the dentine. And so that's where those nerve and blood vessels are located. Okay, that's the, the maintenance pipe. Yes, exactly. It's the, <laughs> it's the feeding tube that goes to your dentine. And so that's your top part of the tooth is the enamel outer section, dentine inner layer, and pulp core, pulp uh, nougat in the middle. And then you have the roots at the bottom, which is what anchors it into the jaw. Right. The root is the part. So crown on top, root, hit, usually hidden within the gums. Yep. And it's different for different organisms, but, and even within our teeth are, they have very different root structures. These are typically covered in a material called cementum. And cementum is a, once again, less hard than our previous two materials substance that covers the root and allows for fibrous connective tissues to anchor the tooth. Oh, cool. Cement. It's yeah. cementum. It hangs in there. It's also one of the most fragile. If it's exposed, if your gum exposes it, it wears fastest. Uh, okay. So that's why that can be so bad when your roots get exposed. Yeah, yeah. So that's what makes up a tooth. And for the most part, at least in mammals, and as you'll notice, most tooth discussion is typically talking about mammals because we've gone pretty bonkers with our teeth. Yeah. Lots of things have teeth, but oh boy, have mammals owned it in a way that few animal groups have. And not only have they gone crazy with like the things they've done, the way those materials are used and present and the diversity there is extreme. So like not all animals have all of those parts. There's creatures like uh, certain kinds of fish that don't have enamel. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, some that have different kinds of enameloid stuff, you know, <laughs> enamel-like things. Enamel adjacent. Yes. It is doing the same role and it's similar material, but it's not the same as our enamel. So you have variety in all of these. Like I said, there are different kinds of dentine that you'll see in different animals. So... It's not as simple as those parts and <laughs> those materials. But that's another podcast. That's another podcast. <laughs> Just to give you an example in mammals on how weird it gets. There are some like armadillos and aardvarks that lack enamel completely. Yep. It's just exposed dentine, which makes their teeth ridiculously soft compared to like our own, which is weird. That's a weird thing to do. It's a thing they do. Xenarthrins. Probocidians, your elephant tusks are made out of ivory. I'm sure many people recognize that term, but you may not realize that ivory is just a special form of dentine. Oh. It's a special version of it that forms these tusks and is growing differently than ours would. Yeah, the, the structure of ivory has this... If you ever get to see a piece of ivory, it has this cross-hatching pattern yeah. because of the way it grows. One of my favorite, to, to drive home the point about the pieces of teeth... One of my favorite things to notice in the tusks of the gray fossil site mastodon is that if you look at the tusk from the back, 
you can see, you know, the dentine ivory structure. And then there is this hollow tube. Perfect circle. Running through most of the length of the tusk, which is the pulp cavity. Yeah. Where the pulp once was. Yep. So you get really weird versions. And then you get some that kind of break the rules (laughs) on like rodents and logomorphs, your rabbits and hares, have ever growing, especially front teeth, but many of them the majority of their teeth are ever growing. Yeah, they they grow forever. Forever. And they wear them down as they chew on stuff. And this has two weird features. One, the ever-growing feature is because in many of them, their ameloblasts don't die. Oh. So they're able to just keep producing enamel. Wow. So that's why they can keep growing their teeth is they're able to make new parts, of new material of all the substances. That's a handy trick. Right. And wearing your teeth means you can wear them into specific shapes. Yeah. So the layout of the enamel, the dentine in like a rodent tooth is positioned in a way so that as they chew it down and it wears, it wears into a chisel shape naturally. Yeah. We talked about in the last episode about ceratopsians. Yes. Their teeth did something similar. The different tissues wore into that specific shape. And we'll mention them again later because their teeth also did a weird thing and how they kept the tooth battery in shape yeah and then you also get truly bizarre teeth like amphibians have something called pedicellate teeth and these are teeth that are actually flexible Uh. (laughs) the connective tissue in the dentine is at least to an extent in many of them uncalcified and separates the crown from the root, the area called the neck of the tooth, where the crown and roots meet, is partially uncalcified or fully uncalcified, maybe, to the point that there's a a flexure to them. (laughs) Weird. Yeah. Bendy teeth? Yeah, bendy teeth. Weird. Which I remember learning about in the giant salamander way back when, and they were like, the flexible teeth let them grab things more effectively and push it into the mouth. And I went, surely someone read something wrong. But yeah, no, that, you, you must be mistaken. That can't exist. <laughs> wow, they're jointed teeth. Yeah. Kind of. Uh, yeah. Weird. So teeth are complicated structures. They have your very specific formations to the materials making them. The way they're grown is also very complex. This is not a embryology discussion <laughs> of teeth because that's a whole huge discussion but we will get into a little bit of that but there's just there's a ton of diversity to how different groups have taken these structures and adapted them to different things the question though of where did teeth come from is a difficult one to answer partially because of this weird diversity in that When we look back into the fossil record to try to look for the signs of the earliest teeth and where they developed from and how they developed, we run into the issue of lots of very similar structures in lots of different, sometimes very distantly related groups that could all potentially be good candidates. And a lot of them also have not great phylogenies, their relationship to other animals or the animals within their group is not really well defined. So we end up running into lots of situations where a a potential 
answer looks really good until another bit of research comes out. Right. <laughs> Here is a list of animals that might represent early teeth depending on where they actually fit. And whether their teeth are tooth-like enough right. or the right kind of tooth-like. <laughs> so the origins of teeth is actually quite muddled. And there are some active debates still going on. Uh, though most research does seem to fall out on a couple of answers, there are still big questions being asked and disagreements on the answers. Interesting. So let's, let's take a look at some of that history and what the potential theories are that have been derived from these different lines of evidence. I'm ready. So starting at the beginning... That's of, a good place to start. It's usually it's I I've heard it I heard it suggested by smart people. <laughs> In the beginning, early vertebrates, the first time we see toothy like structures is in a group called the conodonts. Very famous group. These go back to the Cambrian and actually come all the way to the late Triassic. So I mean yep. a wide spanning group that are some of the earliest jawless vertebrates with mineralized skeletal material so this is the thing that makes them so famous if you look up conodonts probably the first thing you'll find are these pictures of horrifying looking tooth comb <laughs> things just these these like they look like torture tools they're just spikes and oh yeah twirls and corkscrews they have these mineralized tooth-like structures that were present inside their oropharyngeal cavity their the mouth the throat mouthful, region the mouthful region the mouthful region <laughs> So these, these tooth-like things were in there. They did not have a functioning jaw. These would have been, these are kind of eel-like, so think long swimming animals. They didn't have any other skeletalized, so no hard bony parts on the outside like some later fish will have. And because they are at the, as it was stated in one source I found, dawn of vertebrates, <laughs> and they have these toothy-like structures, they've been pointed to as by most people pretty firmly, probably some of the earliest skeletalized material in vertebrate evolution, and potentially some of the earliest teeth-esque things. And their name indeed, Conodont. Mm -hmm. Dont. Don't. You hear Don and Don't. Don't in a lot of scientific names. You're going to hear a lot in this episode. <laughs> yep. Tooth. Yes. Mastodon and Megalodon. So they've been pointed out as a potential culprit for some of the earliest signs of teeth and because they were those toothy things were housed in that throat that mouthful region it led to a theory that has been coined the inside out model of tooth evolution oh so this is a theory that states that teeth evolved from pharyngeal or oropharyngeal odontodes and odontodes are just tooth-like structures that aren't in the mouth. Okay, so we're in the throat region. In the throat. The throat hole region. also hear this used more often for things on the skin. For, like, oh, things right, right, on right. armor and stuff that are toothy material, but on the outside. Right, right. That's a, spi a spoiler. Yes. And this led to this theory that you had these toothy-like things inside the throat, and these are found on other organisms. Like, there are fish today with tooth-like structures on those, those pharyngeal arches and pharyngeal jaws. Near the gills. The famous uh, moray eel has a functioning jaw, set of jaws in its throat. Yeah, pharyngeal jaws. Yes. 
So this is not an unusual thing. Lots of fish have pharyngeal odontotes. This theory suggests that those throat teeth were then co-opted and moved anteriorly forward into the mouth. Okay. Which, yeah, makes sense. I yeah, mean, that's, that seems logical. You got in your throat, take two steps forward, and now your mouth teeth. And that with this, with, with these inner throat teeth existing before jaws did, it suggests that teeth evolved before a functioning jaw, and then that they came together as a uh, uh, cooperative unit later. Right, right. So, so earlier teeth in this model may have functioned, right, the early ancestors of teeth may have functioned as tools to turn a throat into a horror tunnel. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a will-it-blend throat. <laughs> and this is a, a sound theory, but we run into issues kind of right out of the gate. Certain studies, uh, one study in particular, Duncan Murdoch et al. in Nature 2013, took a look at conodonts to try to look at, all right, is this a good candidate for looking at vertebrate tooth evolution? And what their results came to, they were also looking at ancestry within conodonts, but their results seemed to suggest that those conodont teeth are convergent with later vertebrate teeth. Oh, episode 70, all about convergent yeah. evolution. Similar structures evolved independently. So even though they are in a related lineage of vertebrates, and even though they have, both have teeth, it looks like they did not evolve from one another, but both evolved on their own. Which means conodonts may not be really good to even include in the discussion of vertebrate tooth evolution at all. Mm, they might be a, a red herring. Yeah. That doesn't mean that the inside-out theory just gets thrown out of the window. Because like I said, very common in fish. Right, right. Pharyngeal yeah, teeth. Could still be true. Yes, could have come from a different group later on. But conodonts, maybe not. Okay, all right, all right. So that brings us to other jawless fish, other early vertebrates, with those pharyngeal teeth, the throat teeth, but also skin denticles. Skin teeth. Skin denticles. Denticles, your dent for teeth. Yep. And then you have your epidermis. Uh, these are any tooth-like structure on the outside of the body, on the skin, on armor, whatever it may be. Like I said, a lot of times the odontodes are referring to these things. Okay, so I'm thinking of like the sandpaper skin of a shark. Yes. These early ones were found on exoskeletal armor oh. with toothy bumps. Oh, placoderms? Not yet. Oh, okay. Not yet. So we're jawless still. We oh, don't okay. have functioning jaws yet. Early jawless armored fish. These, a good example of the, this group is the Thelodonts, mm -hmm. uh, an Ordovician to late Devonian group of fish with skin denticles similar in structure to Elasmobranchs, shark and ray skin, but also possessed throat teeth pharyngeal teeth on the gill arches. Okay. So had both, and this present of skin teeth, denticles, brought in the other side of the tooth debate. I see where you're going with the this. outside-in theory. Ah. So one theory saying you have teeth-like things in your throat region and they move forward in the mouth. This is saying you have tooth-like things on your skin that come around the lips to the inside either 
legitimately migrating and at some point differentiating, or that it was the same developmental process got moved to the mouth somehow. Right, right. You act, you kicked on the genes in the wrong place, and the wrong place turned out to be the right place. Yes. So now we have one saying it came from inside the throat, another saying it came from the skin. This outside-in theory is also supported by genetic information. The genes and developmental pathways for mammalian teeth are very similar and at times almost the same as those for fish scales. Interesting. Yes. And in certain groups, the materials are even very similar. Also interesting. So the steps and genetics it takes to make your teeth are often very similar to the steps and genetics it takes to make fish scales, which suggests an evolutionary connection way in our past. This is supported by some cool things, like there's a genetic disorder, a mutation that can cause, uh, it's noted at least in human and mice, called ectodermal dysplasias, which is when teeth and hair fail to grow. Okay, that was not, that didn't go the direction I was worried it was going to go. Oh yeah, yeah, no, like, things could have gotten really horrifying. No, I was ready. (laughs) (laughs) All right, no teeth and hair. They found that in both humans and mice, there's a similar group of genes that gets mutated to cause that. Okay. In a group of teleos fish called the medaca, there is a mutation found in those same genes that cause them not to develop scales. Wow. Okay. A deep genetic connection. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, the chapter's not closed because in those mutated medaca, a lot of times they still develop teeth. Okay, so it's not exactly the it's same. It's not a pure, perfect example, one-to-one connection. Right, right. So, and like I said, we see similar material sometimes. In, in a lot of teleos fish, we see elasmoid scales, which have mineralized material in them and contain stuff at least similar to dentine and enamel-like or derived proteins. Okay. So... Some of the scales have at least very similar building blocks to our teeth. So there are some strong connectors between the epidermis, your skin, or fish skin, and mammalian teeth. And this is strengthened further by some of the other groups. Uh, We do have other jawless fish that have dermal teeth, denticles, but lack pharyngeal teeth. And that's one of the things that a lot of the analysis on the debate say that For the pharyngeal teeth to be really strongly supported, we need a group with only throat teeth, no skin teeth. Right. To show that you can have that. that Yes. That's a possible thing. And and so that we don't have the murky water of, well, yeah, but you had both. Right. So, like, you arguing that it definitely was the skin while there are throat teeth right there. Yeah. Or that there had to be the throat teeth when there's skin covering the body or when there's teeth covering the body. Yeah. It makes it very murky. Like we need, uh, we need to get. It's looking for that, uh, that ideal transitional species. Right. You're looking for one that has one that definitely is the source. This one has that situation, and potentially could be a good candidate. Uh, these are going to be things like ostracoderms, another armored jawless fish that went extinct around the Devonian as well. 
and they have a good setup with tooth-like structures on the skin and no tooth-like structures inside. So it could be. Their phylogenetics are not the cleanest, though. That means that there's not one nice evolutionary lineage for us to examine here. So once again, we're running to that uh, conodont situation of you may not be related to the right groups, potentially. Right, right. So they're not a clear picture, but they do have the right setup to be a heavy support of skin to teeth. Then we get to the placoderms. Hey, the armored fish we discussed in episode 29. Yes, these were from the Silurian to the Devonian. These are the first jawed vertebrates, true functioning jaws. They're the famous like Dunkleosteus with the big scissor mouth full of armor. These fish have become very crucial to the discussion of tooth evolution because they seem to have the members with the earliest teeth. True teeth. True teeth. Most likely. There okay. are there tr- is some <laughs> true teeth, finally, really, maybe. Yes. There's there is still some studies that take some issue with the identification of them being teeth. Okay. There is one placoderm, Compagopiscus, which seems to have definite inside the mouth teeth. Now they don't look like our teeth. They would have been probably still on a plate, like an armored plate. Very much like the armor on the skin, but inside the mouth. Uh, they had these teeth that seemed to be composed of dentine and bone. Okay. So we don't have, like, enamel. But there does seem to be a distinct pulp cavity. So we're getting very toothy. Looks looks like a tooth. Very much. And there's indications that other arthrodires is the group this individual is in. It's a group of placoderms. That other species may have also had similar teeth. Okay. So sort of kind of teeth. Sort of kind of teeth. In the mouth. Seems to be our earliest pretty much agreed upon vertebrate teeth. Okay. So these are teeth that are not only look like they might actually be teeth, Mm -hmm. but are in the place and presumably being used for the function that we associate with teeth. Now, this does not clear up where it came from. Right. <laughs> it's already in the mouth. <laughs> you yep. know, we, we needed to watch it move there. <laughs> and this isn't to say that there's no confusions with this group. There are placoderms that have been noted to have teeth. And then later people have pointed out, well, I don't actually think those are dental plates. Right. I don't think those are in the mouth. You'll often see Roman Dina listed as the earliest teeth the oldest teeth at least Uh, the oldest known teeth that we have found this is another arthrodire and has a tooth plate that ages to 410 million years old which would put it at the earliest teeth we've found so far and is listed that way The, the news articles described it that way the wikipedia article lists it but there was a response study so the original study was martin rooklin and philip Donahue in 2015, there was a response in 2017, Moya Smith, that compared that tooth plate because it was an isolated tooth plate. It wasn't associated with the skeleton. Okay. With a articulated tooth plate from another placoderm. Okay, that was with the skeleton. That was with the skull and said, we found a lot of differences mm. that indicate this very likely may not be a inside the mouth tooth plate. It may be on the skin Identical plate. 
So as as is so often the case, the earliest of a thing is elusive. Yes. And then finally, we get to the group that is probably what most people have been waiting for us to discuss. The most famous group with tentacles, Sharks and Rays. Hey, I've heard of them. Episode 48. Absolutely. We've discussed these before, and one of their most famous features is that their entire body is covered in small tooth-like scales. Is teeth. Is teeth. It makes them very hydrodynamic, and you can feel it if you rub one way, it's smooth, and if you rub the other way, you can feel the tips of the teeth grabbing onto your skin. They have been studied quite extensively to see what might be the connection between denticles and mouth teeth and true teeth. And the reason these are so famous for calling for being called denticles is because the scales of a shark are almost identical to the teeth of a shark. Like the materials are very much the same. They're grown in very similar ways. So yeah, it is skin teeth. (laughs) Weird. Or teeth skin, whichever way you Teeth in the skinal region. Yes. (laughs) But one thing that is still missing from this skin tooth connection is an example of teeth scales organizing and replacing in a way more similar to mouth teeth. Right, right. Oral teeth. And that's kind of one of the big things that they need because we do have some that have very tooth-like structures like sawfish, but they don't behave the same way as the teeth in their mouth. Right. They don't grow the same way. They They don't don't replace the same way. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of been one of the things that scientists have been looking for. And they have found some specimens. One particularly good example is a extinct ray that looks like a sawfish. It's very long and flat called Schizoriza, which is a late Cretaceous ray that had a sawfish-like structure up front with denticles, denticle-like structures, tooth-like structures coming off the skin to form the saw, but they were the edge was being replaced in a very similar way to the way the teeth in the mouth are replaced. Because sharks famously, and we'll go over this in more detail later, replace their teeth throughout their life. Right, right. And seeing that similar tooth replacement on the outside of the mouth on the body is a strong indicator that the scales can indeed be differentiated into a much more modern tooth-like style, you know, functioning. So it's pretty strong, or at least supportive evidence, for the outside-in theory. Okay, that there is a scales-to-tooth connection there. And though there is a debate with this, most of the sources I was able to find and look at And if there's a tooth specialist out there that's about to have an aneurysm with what I'm about to say, please correct me. (laughs) But most of the ones I found seem to go with the outside in that scales led to teeth. And also that jaws and teeth indeed are separated in their evolutionary origin, that they did not happen simultaneously. Right. The first jaws did not necessarily have teeth and the first teeth... Did, were not necessarily in jaws, like they yes. weren't. Ne- they didn't have to happen together. <laughs> but that most of them seem to suggest it came teeth came after the jaw, that you had okay. a jaw and then you got teeth into it. That's the most common, like that's the way a lot of sites that are just doing an overview 
just list it that way kind of as fact. That's also how I've usually heard. Mm-hmm. I've heard the skin, the scales connection yep. before, and I've heard teeth into jaws. So that tracks with sort of my cursory knowledge of it as well. Yeah, but like I said, there evidently is still a debate because most of the recent papers I read still commented on and mentioned the debate. So it's at least up until 2018, something that it, you still need to include in your paper about teeth. Yeah. We're still disco- We're still working it out. Yeah. Still discussing. Very interesting. It, I, I, I like, we haven't gotten to, we talk so much on this podcast about the origins of groups of life. It's really fun to get to every now and then talk about the origins of a type of body part. Yeah. A feature. A feature, a tissue, an organ. Because especially this is like when we did our grass episode, mm-hmm, episode mm-hmm. 38, it's something that's so common and so ubiquitous and so everywhere that when you stop and think, all right, yeah, but where did it come from? Yeah, At one point, there were no teeth. There were no teeth. It's just such a cool thing. It's a cool story to get to learn about. It really is. And there's still like development happening. There was one study in 2011 by Gareth Fraser et al. that was proposing a third Inside and out model, (laughs) which was saying that tooth development on the ectoderm, the outside of our our, our tissues and the endoderm, the inside of our tissues is equally possible. So it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. There could be an interaction. Right. That maybe that's the same mechanism. Yeah. That there's a connection. They went into a, a genetic source to that origin that I was very quickly got beyond my understanding of Mm -hmm. the systems they were discussing, but there are potential other solutions or, or suggestions than just the two. Uh, The paper was fairly critical of that. We've been diverged into a false dichotomy of options. Uh, So there may be other answers that we come to later on. Uh, Fun. Fun. I I love when we don't know. Yes, it's that's, always that's the little... best part of science when we, we're not sure of a thing. Strangely satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> so next we're going to discuss how do we discuss teeth? <laughs> so we have teeth. We have teeth now. Evolutionary. In whatever way we got it. Right. Somehow teeth. <laughs> and now they are ubiquitous. And now we need to figure out how to discuss all the the variety. How do we do what we humans are so good at and carp- compartmentalize them? I'm excited to do it. Stay tuned to find out. So we've already mentioned the diversity of mammal teeth, but mammals aren't the only ones who have teeth. Sure not. And when you spread your look out to all teeth, you find that just about every aspect of a way a tooth can be structured and shaped and put in the mouth has variety to it. And each of those things can become very important for identifying different groups, but also how those teeth function and behave. So kind of starting from the... The the bigger picture. The bigger picture and getting more specific. Let's take a look at some of the ways we define those different aspects of the teeth. Yeah, a deep dive into tooth terminology. This is your chart, your yes. tooth chart. Because if you ever decide to take a course in paleontology, this is going to be a huge chunk 
Oh yeah, and, of your vo- vocab terms. And uh, this may not be surprising, but the fact that we can categorize teeth by a whole list of different features that fit into these nice terms, and we can apply them in combined ways, and di- I really like it. It's it's a cool topic. It's actually very fun. It's and very it's, satisfying. I also like it because the terms can be mixed and matched almost in any order. Yes. Like, for each of the terms, you could then apply almost any of the others from the other categories, and there's probably an animal that that applies to. Yeah, let's get into it and tell people what we're talking about. <laughs> so the, the first bit of a tooth, starting kind of from the bottom up, is how it's attached to the jaw. Because, as some people may not know, not all teeth are locked into the mouth the same way. Right. Our teeth are famously in little holes, in little pockets. Like sockets. Sockets. A tooth socket in the jaw. And that's the term you'll often hear is socketed. This is known as thecodont attachment. Thecodont dentition, where your teeth are in little sockets in the bone, or aveolus, that hold your tooth, hold the roots... And lock them in place. Right. If you look at a human jaw without any teeth in it, there will be a hole, more or less, for each tooth. Yes. Where the tooth was was once. Vacant spaces. This is by far the rule for mammals. And typically you'll see it almost listed as a mammal thing. Yeah. But there are other animals who have it. Not many others than mammals, but there are. There are some fish that have socketed teeth. Uh, the Some examples I saw were like barracuda and uh, haddock have socketed teeth. But famously, the, the well-known group that is thecodont outside of mammals are crocodilians. Yeah. They, Crocs and alligators have it. And it's thought that for mammals, it was we were specializing teeth, so we wanted to lock them in. For crocs, we're biting really hard. Right. <laughs> so we need the strongest support. We need a good anchor. <laughs> yep. But that's not the only way for a tooth to be attached. You also have acrodont dentition. This is where the teeth are fused to the surface of the jawbone. Right. This is uh, often, the way this was first described to me when I first learned about it in school was it's like a saw. Yeah. Where you have the body of your saw and then the top edge of the saw is just teeth. There are no roots. It's just attached onto the bone. Most fish teeth is going to fall into the acrodont category. These are often seen as more simplistic, but it's also some of the more common teeth. You also see this in some lizards, mm-hmm. like chameleons have this. Yeah. Which and they're you can when you if you ever get to see a chameleon skull or jaw, it stands out. Like they look they look different. They look different. It looks like a like a hatchet. Yes, it so does. Like, like a weapon with these teeth at the end of it. Yeah. And then as we're talking about lizards, you have pleurodont dentition yeah all the best lizards have this (laughs) this is where the teeth are attached to the inner side of the jaw where basically if you were to look at the inside of your jaw you have that nice boomerang shape instead of placing the teeth on top or in the bone you went on the inside of the jaw and glued them to the edge right so oftentimes these will be on a little shelf yeah so if you imagine like a very narrow shelf attached to a wall and then you put a bunch of wine bottles on it and just slide them up against the wall yes they are sitting against the back of this shelf on the shelf but the side facing you is just open they're on a little shelf that it attaches them to the inside wall of the jaw much like the acrodont, we're lacking 
roots and nerves and blood vessels attaching to the teeth. So that's one of the major differences is in Thigodont, you have a nice biosphere for the tooth right. with everything <laughs> contained and connected. Here, they're more just attached to the jaw. What kind of animals have pleurodont teeth? It's very common in most reptiles. So, you know, just reptiles. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> Do yeah, you yeah. know of anyone that has? Snakes! <laughs> <laughs> lots of snakes, lots of lizards, I yeah, see. Yeah, it's, it's common among lizards in yeah. general. So, lizards and snakes, this is most of them, if you look inside their mouth, it's going to be teeth put onto the side of the jaw. And a lot of times you'll see stacks of teeth. It looks almost jumbled in some of them. Yeah, it looks messy. Yeah. A lot of times. And actually, in the blog post, I have a snake jaw. Yes. We can actually take a picture yes, that shows that we really should. well. We'll we put should. it in the blog. So there's also a variety in the numbers of teeth. Not in one, two, three, four in the mouth, but in how many sets of teeth yeah. an animal gets. This is probably less surprising to people because there are famous animals that get way more teeth than us humans do. There are th three groups to this, and they're pretty self-explanatory. Monophyodont, diphyodont, and polyphyodont. Which, mono, one, di, two, poly, lots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A bunch. And that's what it is, is there are some animals who have teeth that replace more or less than others. In monophyodont, these are typically not full dentitions, though sometimes it is, but usually teeth that you only get one of. And some examples are actually in marsupials. There are marsupials that retain their first set of teeth, except the molars. You know, so okay. their back teeth. Right, right. Uh, and we'll get into defining all the different kinds of teeth in a little bit. But they retain their baby teeth, as we would know them, except for a few. And then there are some that have teeth early in life and lose them. Like, And then that's it. They're just baby teeth. Yes, exactly. Like a platypus develop with teeth, but don't have teeth as adults. Right, they lose them as they become adults. Yeah, they're not replaced at all. Diphyodont is us and most mammals. We get a baby set, we get an adult set, and then that's it. And then you're done. Diphyodont, two sets. The deciduous teeth, the baby teeth, or primary teeth sometimes, are your first set you're born with, and then your permanent teeth, your adult teeth, are the ones that replace those. Right. Depending on which group you're looking at depends on when this happens. It also depends on whether or not how long you use each one. Like we use our baby teeth for quite a while. There are other groups like uh, rabbits that some of them are born with the adult teeth because they shed the baby teeth d during development. Wow. Uh, so like, or they shed it very quickly after. So some animals almost skip to the permanent teeth. You also typically will have different numbers from baby to adult like right, we have right. more adult teeth than yeah. we have baby teeth we get those wisdom teeth yeah we don't have as babies and i guess the wisdom teeth then are monophyodont yes because we only get the one set so you get you can have a mixture of these features and then we get to our polyphyodont which is when there is multiple sets of teeth replacement they just keep coming back and for some animals it is as many as you want and then others it's i do it like four or five times right. and then i'm done so, once again, a range. There's not one set here. Right. Well, we, they, they, we, we, we named monophyodont and diphyodont, and then we got lazy. Yes. And we didn't want a triphyodont, tetraphyodont. <laughs> right? nah, poly, it's fine. Yeah. Did you do it more than us? All right, cool. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Too many phyodont. 
The most famous of these are going to be like crocs and sharks. Right. Which just have that wonderful continuous tooth replacement. And are very efficient at it. You know, uh, an alligator can shed a tooth a month but and can go through hundreds of teeth. Sharks are the masters. Right. Where if you look inside a croc's mouth, each tooth is a cone with a baby tooth coming in behind it. Right growing in to replace the adult tooth. Right, which is, I was going to mention that in a lot of these polyphiodon animals, the teeth are constantly, the replacements are ready. Yes. Right, in a gator, the next tooth is already underneath the tooth, ready to replace it when it's needed. And they kind of cycle through the mouth. So if you were to x-ray a alligator jaw, you'd see different stages of baby tooth development. At different tooth locations. Yeah, at each socket. Cool. Sharks, on the other hand, have their front row of teeth and then a second row of teeth behind it. Yeah. What's called a series of teeth. And then oftentimes a third and fourth, sometimes like fifth and sixth. They've just got the whole... It's like bleachers. And each series (laughs) is more developed than the one behind it or more worn if it's the front ones than the one behind it. And sometimes they have two or three series exposed at once because I just want a mouthful of hooks to grab fish. Why not? <laughs> so they can go through thousands of teeth. Cool. 30,000 teeth is the number you'll usually hear thrown around. Wow. For in a lifetime of a shark, 30,000 teeth can be replaced. Poly, many, many, many phylodont. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Sharko phylodont. Yeah. Too many phylodont is <laughs> is a good term. Yep. But there are mammals that do it as well. Mm-hmm. Manatees and elephants are the famous marching molars. Where yeah, they, they have, have conveyor belt system. Exactly. New molars growing in from the back, developing from a little magazine in the jaw and pushing the old molars forward as they're worn down and then fall out the front of the tooth row. Yep. And then you also have a similar situation like kangaroos who also go through a series of molars throughout their life. So it's not uncommon in mammal, or it's not unknown in mammals. And dinosaurs. Hey-o. Lots of dinosaurs were polyphyodont. Yes, they were. You have things like theropods, T-Rex and its cousins that got new teeth very similar to gators and crocs. Yeah, they did the croc method. But then you have things like the dent- the dental batteries in your hadrosaurs and ceratopsians where they were a bunch of teeth all grouped together to make that chewing surface that replaced more similarly to sharks. With new teeth coming from the inner side and pushing teeth that are worn toward the outer side. But unlike sharks, they didn't shed, they reabsorbed. Oh. Yeah, so they, they, had, a, they had a cycle, not a conveyor belt. Uh. Right? They, their teeth were the conveyor belt. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of weird replacement methods in the animal kingdom. Another cool note on tooth variety that I always think is cool for reasons that will become very clear in a moment is that you can have teeth on different bones of the jaw. So Crocodilians don't have teeth on different bones of the jaw. Well, they do. But so in <laughs> mammals and crocs, you imagine, so we have teeth on the maxilla, which is the upper, the bulk of the upper jaw is your maxilla, and on the dentary, which is the bulk of the lower jaw. Yeah. So dent, left and right dentary, left and right maxilla, each have a tooth row. But if you look at other animals, you'll get teeth on, so if you look at a python, mm-hmm. pythons are a great example of this. They have the maxilla and the dentary teeth, and then in the very front of the mouth, they have a a premaxillary bone, which sometimes has little teeth on it, and then the roof of the mouth has a palatal, a palatine bone, which forms the roof of the mouth, that has a row of teeth, 
And then behind that is the pterygoid bone that has its own set of teeth that form a continuous row from the palatine teeth. So some snakes like that have teeth on one, two, three, four paired bones, plus the premax, which is often fused together. So you can have different variety of where your teeth are and how many bones have teeth attached to them. And the, the premaxilla teeth are in most like most reptiles and most mammals have those just in like a lot of mammals. The premaxilla is not unfused. Right, it's not separate. It's not separate like it is obviously right. in reptiles. So in like we have premaxilla teeth, but our premaxilla is just fused to our face. <laughs> sometimes in, in human dental terms, it, uh, sometimes it's called the incisive bone. Because yeah. it's where the incisors are. Yeah. So it's our front teeth. And yeah, you see that a weird organization of teeth in certain animals, which is cool. We've talked about vomerine teeth and mosasaurs and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, we mentioned pharyngeal teeth and mm-hmm. the, the moray eel down in the throat. And this actually leads us to like the variety of teeth. That is another feature. Having different teeth is a feature that not all animals have. Right. Different types of teeth. Yes. Different forms of teeth. We're used to it because it's what we have different teeth. Like you can look in your mouth right now and go, yeah, those teeth are very different because they feel different and look different. And I call them different things. (laughs) But that is known as heterodont. Lots of animals are homodont. So if you think of those pythons I was just mentioning, or a shark is a good example. Lots of teeth and they all look pretty much the same. Yes. And they're all doing pretty much the same thing. So heterodont, hetero being different, homodont, homo being same, different toothed, same toothed. Now, more so than most of our other groups, not, they all have this to a degree, but more so than most, this one has a very granular distinction between the two. A very uh, gauged, you can be slightly homodont and more heterodont or mostly homodont and slightly heterodont and somewhere in the middle. You can be homodont in your shape, but heterodont in your size. Yep. And so like crocodilians are a great example where they have differentiated teeth. Like their back teeth are a little less sharp than their front teeth and their front teeth are, they have more prominent cananiform, pointy, big prominent teeth, but they're all still just peg teeth. Right. T-Rex is another similar example where it's it's got those banana teeth along the mouth and they're mostly shaped the same, but there's a handful up front that are much bigger. But then you do have animals like a lot of lizards where if I took a tooth from the back of the mouth and the front of the mouth and the middle of the mouth, you couldn't tell me which one was which. Right. Classic homodont dentition. And then you have things like mammals who are every single tooth (laughs) on one side of the mouth is completely distinct, even from the other teeth it's like. So we should make the distinction now that we're getting into this, that speaking of tooth positions, mm-hmm. we tend to think of teeth in quadrants. Yes, we do. So your the bones of your jaw are usually paired on either side, so you're symmetrical, so you have the same thing on either side, and different but similar from top to bottom. Yeah, some animals have very distinct bottom teeth compared to their top. So in humans, when we talk about the types of teeth, we're going to see the same basic setup in each quadrant. Upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right of the jaw. left teeth should be a mirror of your right teeth. And then we just need to differentiate between top and bottom. You'll often see that 
described that way. And it becomes very important in how we group different sets of teeth. Now, this is getting very heavily just into mammals. Right. There's this fascinating, and we talked about this in episode 47, Mm -hmm. sort of early synapses into mammals. One of the classic things that we observe is that our earliest ancestors were very homodont, and you start to see more and more differentiation and specialization in how different teeth in different part of the mouth are shaped and how they're being used. And so that's what mammals really brought to the the teeth table. It's one of our biggest sort of claims to fame that very few other animals have really capitalized on. We created, through our evolution, distinct groups of teeth, each with typically fairly uniform characteristics. There's still tons of variety of each of these groups. Some animals have done really weird stuff, (laughs) and some have gotten rid of groups entirely. But the groups are as follows, and these terms you're probably already familiar with. The incisors, your front front teeth, the canines, the teeth behind the incisors. The pointy ones. Your premolars, the slightly less pointy, slightly more grindy teeth behind the canines, and your molars, your back teeth. From front to back, incisors, which tend to be sort of flat and chisely. They're usually made for nipping, cutting, gripping. Your canines, which are pointy. Which are typically for holding, tearing, or defense or fighting sometimes. Think about wolves. Yep. uh, Or saber-toothed cats who have taken it to the extreme. Yes, exactly. And then your premolars and molars, which in us are very similar. Yes, like, they, they're pretty much all grindy. Flat they all teeth. feel basically the same, but in many, the premolars are kind of a mix between a canine and a molar. They're a little more pointy. They have less surface area than a molar. Right. They're kind of triangular. Like I'm thinking dogs. Yeah, and they're they're often, uh, and we'll get to this, but they often have two bumps, you know, versus yes. the lots of bumps on a molar. Yes. So those are your groups of teeth. There's chapters to be written about each one. Oh, absolutely. But what this becomes important for is something known as dental formulas. Very big deal in classifying, in in describing different groups of mammals. So a dental formula goes back to those quadrants that you mentioned, David. This is where I can describe with a very simple set of numbers, as long as you know what the order and arrangement means, what kinds of teeth are on each side of the mouth, top and bottom, and how many of each teeth, each type of teeth there are. The way we do this is we use the initials I, C, P, and M, sometimes P, M, and M. Incisor, canine, premolar, molar. And then we list the number of each of those kinds of teeth on one half of the jaw next to it with, sometimes it's written where the numbers are the two lists of numbers are above one another and below one another. Right. For the top and lower. Three over three, one over one, yeah. four over four. To or, say three on top, three on bottom, one on top, one on bottom. And sometimes you'll see like the top ones literally written in a line with then a fraction line and then the bottom ones lit, written in yep. a line. Sometimes you'll see it where it's more fractional. So it's three over two, two over three and da da da. But so then you can see my first number is how many incisors I have on one half of the top jaw. The number below that is how many incisors I have on one half of the lower jaw. So on and so on and so on. So if you look at like a dog yep. or a wolf. I get wolf's better because dogs we've messed up. Yes. But it should be three, one, four, three. 
Yep. Three incisors, one canine, four premolars, three molars. And it's usually going to be the same top and bottom. Mm -hmm. Not always. There's variation. Yeah, there's somewhere they're missing like a molar on the top. And looking at this code, you can then start to identify trends and patterns. And you can get things like us humans is going to be two, one, two, two dash three. Right. <laughs> because Unless of the you're wisdom like tooth. me and you've had several teeth removed. Yes. My dental formula is all wonky. And you can get some animals that look wonky. A squirrel has one zero two three on top and one zero one three on bottom. Not always the same top and bottom. Yeah. They have different formulas top and bottom and the zero means no canines. Yes. They have lost them completely. And this starts to get into this very interesting diversity where the number of the different types of teeth can vary in really interesting ways. Yeah, when like they only have one incisor. They have fewer incisors than most mammals, but man, are those some incisors. Right. And as a reminder, when we say one incisor, we mean four. Yes. One, one top left, left top right, <laughs> bottom left, bottom right. Yes. My One of my favorite tooth dental formula comparisons is dogs versus cats. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they're the same up front. But then when you get to the cheek teeth in the back, dogs have seven. Yeah. Uh, as six or seven through the, the cheeks, which is the ancestral placental mammal setup, cats tend to have like two or three because a cat has said, you know what? I prefer efficiency and all I have in my mouth is blades. And so you can also start tracking. We started out with bunches of teeth and then different lineages have typically reduced different numbers of each of those down to whatever is needed to do the job they're doing best. Yeah. And one of the areas that they can start modifying teeth to do those different jobs is in the shape, typically, of the back teeth. The the shape of the crown, specifically. Yeah. The business end of the tooth. The occlusal surface, where your teeth meet teeth. Where they occlude. Where they occlude. They meet together. And so that surface of the tooth, the shape becomes very important depending on what job you're wanting to do with it. So we have zoomed in from where your teeth, how your teeth attach to your mouth, where they are in the mouth, what kind of teeth, how they grow and behave, how many types of teeth you have. And now we are looking at the different shapes that back teeth, molar teeth can take. So the way we discuss the shape of a tooth is typically in cusps. The, the bumps on your teeth are called cusps. And the number of cusps, the shape of the cusps, all can have different names. And you've probably heard some of these. Yes. the For the first one, or for these first set of terms, it just has to do with how many cusps you got. And the most common terms you'll hear used for this are a cuspid, which has one cusp. Your canine's a good example uh, of a prominent cusp. Right. It's got one bump. It's basically a cone. Yeah. Most reptile teeth are cuspids. They just have a single bump. Bicuspid. You have two bumps. And that's why the premolars are very often bicuspid in many animals. Behind your canines, it is a two-bumped tooth. Tricuspid, which is one of the earliest complex teeth we see, is three bumps. And then you can... There are teeth that can continue to add to that. You can get four cusps. 
and lots of little subcusps. Oh, yeah. You, it, they get real wacky. You get real, real weird. There are a couple of theories as to how we gained cusps over time. Some earlier ones suggested that teeth merged, single cusped teeth merging into multi-cusped teeth. But that's not generally what's accepted. Mostly it's accepted that we had a single cusp tooth that then had another cusp pop out. Right. It's like when you grow an extra finger. Yeah. And then as you got a row of cusps, typically it's three cusps in a row, then you could start moving those into a triangle shape and into different orientations to make a different chewing surface. This chewing surface has its own set of names that get real crazy and awesome. We'll go into some of them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the ancestral mammal molars you'll often hear called tribosphenic three cusped teeth and a lot of those take different shapes you have like zlambodont which have a triangle like shape and then you have uh other variations of that that three cusped shape until we get a fourth cusp added in that then gives us a whole list of other shapes to go to and so some of them like you can almost see like there's a couple that are defined by the shape the cusps take and the ridges between the cusps they're sometimes like a mountain ridge, like a a blade almost connecting cusps. Some have V-shaped, some have W-shaped. Yep. Real zigzaggy. It gets very specific and detailed and complex. Quadratubercular is when you have those four cusps that come in and start. That's what most, taking that shape and running with it is what most mammal groups Mm -hmm. are are known for. Uh, But you do see some groups that still have these more simplistic just three or fewer cusped teeth, like moles and shrews have. Yeah, I think bats have teeth like that. Yeah, too. those very zigzagged or three pointed teeth. And then we get into teeth that are probably more recognizable. Bunodont is typically for cusped and rounded and kind of flattened for crushing and grinding. Right. If you want an example of Bunodont teeth, stick your finger in your mouth. Yes. And feel your molars. Us pigs, raccoons, a a lot of omnivores. Yeah, great omnivore teeth. These are really good for just eating general stuff. I want to crush stuff. You have things like lophodont, which is one of my favorite terms because it's a loaf of tooth. (laughs) Loaf means ridge. Yes. Uh, But it also, lophodont tooth looks like a loaf of bread. It's it's basically (laughs) like lots of, it looks, and some are almost structured this way, where it is Lots of almost separate teeth smushed together to make a grinding surface. Right. Very much like the dental batteries in dinosaurs, but typically you'll find these in lots of rodents have lophodont-like teeth and proboscideans, the elephants are famous for it. Long, ridged teeth. And then you have other versions of those ridged teeth. Uh, Deer and cattle have selenodont, which are ridged, but in a crescent shape, they're folding the tooth instead of stacking it. Yeah, it's like a a row of smiles. Yeah, exactly. And then you have a group that is called cecodont, which is blade-like. Some are found in herbivores, like kangaroos have little blade teeth. Yep. Most famously, you'll find them in the carnivorans, your major mammal carnivore groups, which have the carnasials. Yeah. Specialized premolars and molars that have turned into a shearing blade system for slicing meat. It is a blade and, and it is iconic it is a defining feature of the carnivorans so your dogs cats bears weasels etc and some t- so if you if you want an example of a carnasial 
stick your finger too far into your dog's mouth. Yes. <laughs> You'll see if you ever get a dog a bone to chew on and they put it on the yeah, side, nah, nah, nah. they're going at it with those carnasials. In some carnivorans, carnasials can get scary. Like, too big. Hyenas have <laughs> just... Oh, no. Like, you can just imagine getting a finger between those, and then that is the end of that finger. Yeah, the last thing you get to do with the finger would be a real cool thing. <laughs> so up to, to observe a, a pair of carnasials. <laughs> and this is a very characteristic thing of the group. That it's always the fourth upper premolar and the first lower molar that form this carnasial pair. Now, I say fourth upper premolar, but you may remember that we listed only one premolar for cats. That's true. When we number teeth, evolutionarily, we number it by the original set of mammal teeth. So if you originally had four premolars and you've been reducing them from the front... Your single premolar is still... Number four. And this is where paleontologists get into arguments with dentists. Yes. Because we number a human tooth count differently than dentists do. Because we've lost teeth and our numbers aren't what they might seem like they should be. Yep. It's the same reason that uh, if you look at toes and like birds and stuff that have, or ungulates that have reduced their toes, hooved animals, will say that it's the, you know, third and fourth toe. Right. The horse's single toe is its third toe. Yeah, exactly. That's the third toe. No, there's one. Yeah, the third one. Yeah, the third one. That's what's <laughs> left. It lost all the other four. And so depending on which way you're reducing your toes can depend on what, how we count them phylogenetically. Teeth are the same way. And then finally, we get to how tall your tooth is. Oh, yeah. Which is something that you might not think of. But yeah, different animals have very different heighted teeth. Right. We're used to thinking of our teeth where it's this root and this crown and they are roughly, they're not quite the same size, but they're similar. Yeah. There you go. That's a tooth. And so here you get different sizes of tooth crown. And it's typically because you're doing different jobs or you're having to use your teeth in a more aggressive or less aggressive way. Brachiodont is our first term. That's low-toothed, where you have a comparatively longer root than the crown. So if you think of our teeth, yep. you've got this, these, this, these legs, the root, and then a crown just stuck on top. Yeah. If you measured it, the roots are the majority of the tooth length, even if it's not by much. And then the opposite of that, hypsodont, where your crown is this sky riser above fairly, comparatively, short roots. Yep. Now, their roots could be longer than ours, but their crown's way longer than ours. And here you typically find these in herbivores. Yes. Things eating often grass. And we talked about this, I believe, in the episode we devoted to, at least for me, the first animal that always comes to mind. It's the animal that is in every single example when I looked up Hypsodon. Yep. Horses. Horses. Horses have these skyscraper crowns on their teeth. And the reason is that their teeth are like ours. They can't keep growing them like a mouse does. Right. So when they're eating grass, which has glass in it. <laughs> shards of glass. They are grinding their teeth down and eventually will run out of tooth. So to lengthen that eventually, they added more crown. So if you Over ever time. get to see a, an image of a of a horse's jaw sort of dissected open, you'll see these little roots in the bottom and then this super tall crown, the tip of which mm -hmm. sticks up out of the, the gums into the jaw. And it just, as it wears down, the tooth rises. It continues to erupt throughout their life. Yeah. So while ours erupt and go, 
all right, I'm in place. I'm done. This is it. Their teeth are just just constantly <laughs> moving up and being worn down. It's like, uh, what is it? Stone Mountain in Georgia, and I, I think Mount Everest is it, where they are rising at almost the same rate they're eroding. Yeah, the Himalayas are still rising, but also being worn down. Yeah, so they're staying at roughly the same height. That's what's happening here. You do see animals who also are eating tough stuff like mice, and they've just decided to let their teeth grow forever. So they're just grinding down. Some of their teeth are ever growing. Yeah. So it doesn't need to have a tall crown because the crown is as big as they need it to be. The crown, (laughs) it's a never ending crown. And then you do have mesodont, mesodont, which is they're roughly the same crown height and root length. And that's actually fairly rare. Interesting. You don't find a lot of animals where it's perfect. It's usually leans one way or the other. But those are our terms. And as we've discussed, we mentioned in the beginning that what's so fun about it is that the terms get sort of, you can make a a, a chart where you can mix and match and put animals. And actually, now I really want to do this. That's super fun. Where you can have an animal that is short crowned and selenodont or something similar, like a cow. Yes. Has short crowns, but it's very complex ridges. Versus a horse, which has a similar upper surface, but big, tall crowns. You can have things that are attached in one way and shaped almost any of the other ways. Like there's there's uh, bufodont reptiles that have flattened teeth for crushing stuff. Yes. and But still have reptile attachments and reptile cusps. And you can have animals like mammals where you have a... Fecodont, socketed, heterodont, different types of teeth, dentition, where your different teeth are doing different food-related things, versus something like a pit viper Yes, that has teeth on multiple bones, pleurodont teeth that are almost entirely homodont, except for a pair up front that are doing something very different, and then that you are have... shaped like needles. Yeah, exactly. and then you have groups that are doing things... That teeth were never meant to do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The tusks of various animals where I have turned my tooth into a tool for the outside world. Yeah. I've turned it into a a spike or a weapon or a (laughs) a shovel. Yeah. My absolute favorite tusk uh, for where it comes from is narwhals. Yes. A narwhal's tusk. If you don't know what a narwhal is, it is a mythical creature. <laughs> yeah, right. It's the whale with the spike coming out of its face. It's the animal that gave rise to the myth of the unicorn <laughs> because it has such a weird tusk. It has that single straight tusk sticking straight out yeah, of the mouth. Spiraling out Spi- of the face. It sticks out straight, spirals out. That is, if I remember correctly, it's left front incisor. Yeah. Left, that bugs me so much. It's not the front two spiraled together. No. It's... Just one of them. It's offset. And to prove it, there are narwhals who have two tusks because accidentally both developed. Yep. So there is so much wacky diversity in what animals have done with their teeth. Yes. And finally, very quickly, we wanted to discuss why teeth are so important to research, especially paleontological research. Right. Because why do we mention them in every episode of the podcast? Why are we getting so excited about it? Why did I say you would have a class on this if you ever take paleontology? It is teeth are one of the most important things we study for a list of reasons, one of which being they fossilize really, really well. They're so good at being fossils. They're tough 
organs, their tough yep. structures. Often the hardest structure in the body. And and mammal is already mostly mineral. Yeah, it's petrified already. <laughs> yeah, so your teeth just need to take an extra little step, and there you go. Not to mention that, and this varies from animal group to animal, but even in humans, most of your types of bone, you get one, maybe two. Yes. You get a whole bunch of teeth. Yeah, we get up to 30 <laughs> easy. Yeah, and and also baby teeth. Yeah. And then if you're a shark, thousands of teeth. You're just littering those around. Yeah. So they are common. They're abundant and they fossilize well. Yeah, and they're tough. And therefore, when we find them, we get lots, we get large samples. And because of a certain other features of teeth, we can do studies on them. We can do analyses on them that we can't do on basically any other part of the body. And that's led us to be able to find out things about fossil animals that if we were missing teeth, we may never have been able to answer or may never have answered as satisfactory, satisfactorily as we do with teeth. Many of those studies we've done at Gray. Yeah, I, I we, we were talking about it when thinking of this episode and we realized that, yeah, we could talk about the several different ways you use teeth in paleo just at the gray fossil site, our favorite site. Would you like to give us some examples since you handle a lot of the info there at the gray site? I sure do. So teeth at gray, first and foremost, we have used them for identification. Mammals especially. And you can, I mean, you find a croc tooth and it's a croc tooth, but mammal teeth are so specialized and so tied to their diets and lifestyles that they tend to be very rapidly specifically evolving structures. Which means that in many cases, you can identify down to a species with a tooth. Single tooth. So you've got, at the gray, we eat the, the red panda, the badger, the wolverine, uh, the horse. We're all identified. The first three of those were identified as new species. Yes. Based just originally on teeth. Because you can look at a tooth and go, well, that's a panda, but that's not any panda we've ever seen. Because the tooth is so complex and detailed. Yeah, it's, you can... Easily, like, I can very often, if handed a mammal tooth, go, that's definitely this group. Yeah. Because it looks like a bear tooth because other teeth don't look like bear teeth. <laughs> teeth were also the the nail in the coffin to, to decide, to tell us what our elephant was. Yeah, exactly. Mastodon, because masti nothing has teeth like a mastodon. Yeah, we were missing the teeth. We didn't have skull. We only had skeletal. And so it looked like maybe this group. And as soon as we found the teeth, we went, nope. Nope. Mastodon. That's mastodon. We've also used teeth to infer diet. Mm -hmm. Now, the classic way that I always think about that is the dinosaur example of like, this one is shaped like a knife. Yeah. The shape of the teeth matching what you eat. Sharp teeth for meat, flat teeth for plants, a little bit of both for a little bit of both. Yes, but that's paleo 101 oh, yeah. that's stuff. That's scratching the surface. That's that's what I used at my kid talks at the aquarium to be like, hey, did you know teeth do different stuff? Right, but when we want to study more detail, what we do is we scratch the surface <laughs> of the tooth. And actually, that's applicable in two ways. Uh, our One of our professors, Dr. Blaine Schubert, has done a lot of work on microware. Yep, yep. Which is examining abrasion patterns on teeth and going, all right, what kind of food causes this damage on teeth? Yes, because we can get a general, are you a vegetarian, a carnivore, or an omnivore by looking at the shape? But we can figure out, are you eating <laughs> salad, grass, leaves? Yeah. <laughs> like, specifically, what are you eating by looking at these details? 
And we can also take chemical analyses, mm-hmm. which we've discussed before, isotope studies. Yep. That will tell you, okay, you've got this ratio of certain elements, which you get from these kinds of plants instead of these kinds yep. of plants. Grass and leaves are chemically distinct. Similar studies have also been done in other places looking at like aquatic food versus terrestrial food. So fish eating versus if you're hunting on land. And this has also been used on predators of those herbivores to figure out, are you eating animals that are eating in the forest or animals that are grazing in the field? Because that might tell us where you were hunting more often. And also teeth are great for ontogeny. Oh, so good. Once again, especially... Especially in mammals. Because we have our baby teeth and our adult teeth. So you can look at not only tooth eruption. So for example, one of my favorite things about our mastodon. So we have one complete skeleton of a mastodon and it has its, basically its version of its wisdom teeth. Yes. The last molars that would have erupted, which gives us a lower bound. We know it, assuming it developed like modern elephants do. This is when it should have developed those teeth. So we can examine growth patterns and then estimate age, but then also not just the tooth formation, but the tooth loss. Yeah. Wear on teeth. The more you use your teeth, the more they wear down. You grind it away. We can get an estimate of age antiquity by how worn down the teeth are. If you're chewing like most of your species is, it should wear at a fairly regular rate. And in the mastodon example, it has its last teeth, but they're barely worn at all, which tells us it just got them. So it's about 30 years old. It's Meanwhile, we it's have so cool. a couple of tapirs that their t- some of their teeth are worn down, almost gone. Did, like flat nubs. Like, to the root, because they just lived this ancient life And had completely used up their teeth. Yeah. So you can look at ontogeny. You can look at what species you have. I've always thought that it's it's fascinating that teeth are one of the very rare examples where you really can, if you have a good specimen, learn an absolute ton about your animal just from that. Well, it's it's like if you were to write a chapter book about each animal, the tooth is going to provide you a significant chunk of those chapters yep. by itself. And it and it also, because as you mentioned, teeth fossilize so well, a lot of the time, that's what we get to work with. Yeah, there's lots of animals that are known from teeth, sometimes period. Some of the best mammal fossil specimens in the world, the most important ones, are a tooth, a whole tooth, but nothing but the tooth. Nice. Thanks. <laughs> so they it's just, they are incredibly important. And it makes sense. The material they're made out of makes them useful for us. It also fossilizes different information chemically. But because mammals have focused so much on using our teeth for very specific jobs, they are very telling of the rest of the animal. You know, we don't use our teeth flippantly. <laughs> we use them specifically. We only get two. Yeah, exactly. We only like, get two sets. So it is a, a core aspect of being a mammal most of the time. There's also things that apply to us humans. We've used it for lots of studies into our ancestry. Yeah. Human teeth, because that also fossilizes better than the rest of the humans. Uh, but it's also given us lots of information and, and insight into our current dentistry. Understanding why our teeth behave the way they do is 
often because of how they originally evolved. Yeah. So medically, it has a function because we still have teeth. <laughs> uh, and, and we have successfully discussed, I think, about 0.1% of the interesting things there are to say about teeth. Oh, yeah. Like, there's this was a very tough topic, mostly for the fact that, and I, we've said this before, of like, it's hard to know what to cut out or there's just so much and it's hard to know. Here, I felt bad. Right. About cutting stuff out. It's like, I'm only going to get to mention tusks. Like, not even the fact that all the animals who have tusks use them in very different ways. Like, well, hey, listen, we can do a tusks episode. Please someone if, request if a tusks only episode. it was on our list. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just, their teeth are a extremely heavily studied subject, so there's lots of information about them. But they're also a ridiculously rich topic because we have a good record of them. So if you want to hear more about teeth, let us know, because we'll love to talk. We would love to talk about teeth again. Absolutely. Because just barely have we bitten into this topic. Very nice. Before we wrap up the episode completely, we do have a patron question. That's right. For all of our listeners who might be unaware, patrons, people on our Patreon of a certain level, get to ask us questions that we will answer live for us, recorded for you here on the podcast and we have one today we sure do today's patron question comes from rita who asks who posits i like it Ooh. millions of years after humans have gone extinct <laughs> a likely scenario as future paleontologist of whatever we want to imagine that would be i assume cephalopods uh, naturally alien cephalopods are digging up our remains is it likely that they will dig up any of our artifacts as well what would be most likely to last and be recognizable as human-made? Good question and good posit. I'm sure there are uh, there, there are probably engineers that could help answer this question. I have a book about this. Right? Yeah, I, do, I have a book that <laughs> tackles this exact thing. There's definitely <laughs> lots of stuff that I think would last at least long enough to show we created artifacts. Yeah. Like, whether specific stuff, especially nowadays, like... There's a reason that we find structures from a thousand years ago that were made out of stone and a house that's, you know, 15 years old is about ready to be reclaimed by the forest. Right. I would imagine stone stuff, metal stuff. Yeah. Plastic. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, Uh, they're going to find a lot of toys. Yeah. And a lot of, like, utensils. I think those would survive pretty well. I did see one thing that listed, um, there's a term for this, but I don't remember what it was. Plastic melted in campfires on beaches melts and fuses with the sand. Yeah, this was Hawaii. Yep, and creates an almost stone-like material. And the people describing it, or the article describing it, said that this very likely could be the the first thing humans will uh, leave in the geologic record. A a rock. That this is a human rock. Plasticite. (laughs) And so they could very well find things like that that are... If not the thing, because like with plastic, the plastic will very likely last whether or not it will have retained enough of its shape to be recognizable. True, true. Because plastic degrades, you know, UV damage and chemical damage can break it down, but you'll probably still find elements of the thing, you know. I think that a lot of our big structures, like a city. Yes. Like New York City is going to be 
there will be remnants. You've got asphalt, and you've that's got what I was about to say. Roads. Road, it's like yep. the roads of Rome can still be found places. Roads are easily buried and everywhere. So yeah, even if ninety percent of the road gets destroyed, you know, if all if ninety percent of all of our roads get destroyed, that's still miles of road. Absolutely, that have been left behind. Another one that I think it was pointed out in my book. My book is called "The World Without Us." Uh, by the way, it's a cool book. I borrowed it from a graduate student when I was an undergraduate. His name was John. I don't remember his last name or where he went, and I still have it. So if you're out there, I'm really sorry, John. Like 10 years ago, I accidentally stole your book. This is why I tell people not to borrow me, uh, loan me books to be like, hey, read this. I'm going to have this for the next three years. So, I borrowed it on field <laughs> camp. If anyone knows a John who was a grad student in the geology department at Penn State like 10 years ago who loaned a book... <laughs> During field camp to one of the undergrads. That's me. I have it. But it pointed out that like bridges yeah. are built super sturdy, like New York City bridges. Uh, it also mentioned like Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Like that's just a rock. Yeah. That we car- that's going to be there a while. It's, there's, even if most of it wears away, if there's any sign, this was a sculpted rock. It was a face. Like all we need to find is, or all they need to find is one little sculpture mark. Subways, yeah, subterranean things I bet would last surprisingly well. What interests me the most is how much wouldn't last. Yeah. And I heard someone, somewhere I heard somewhere that somebody said that uh, this is something that is kind of anxiety inducing for historians. Mm-hmm. The fact that so much of our stuff these days is digital. Yeah. That like an enormous amount of human culture and history is stored in a format that will not last remotely into the future. If anything goes if wrong. If not cared for. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I, I've seen things that trying to uh, uh, address that with like, um, I think it was like mineral inscribed, like like inscribed crystalline Ooh, interesting. storage devices. But I don't know what they are or if they are at a functioning state. Yeah. You know what else it would, would be a good... Uh, uh, who else millions of years in the future will find a cool artifact of humanity is whoever catches like Voyager one. Yes, exactly. Like things in space. Yeah. There will probably, and even uh, not things that far out things in our orbit. Yeah. There are things not going anywhere (laughs) that will probably stay in our orbit for the rest of earth's life, unless something's done about it. So So, yeah, if something like they probably find stuff before they ever landed, man, space archeology. span Yeah. Uh, Which means that if it's an alien paleontologist, they probably already know we were here. If it's an earthbound species that evolved, they may not know until they start developing telescopes and go, Hey, did you put something in space? (laughs) Why is there a box in space? What does NASA mean? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what is a sun uh, rita this is an awesome question and I, I i i address rita now to stop us yes because we will do this forever oh no there's there's a million cool and the time frame uh, saying is it thousands millions hundreds of millions yeah at, at the farther you go it starts becoming more and more like the cambrian <laughs> <laughs> thank you for this question very very cool very interesting topic it's if- a Fun idea. Want to hear us talk more about it? As always, let us know. Oh, absolutely. I'll talk about this however long you want me to. Yeah. (laughs) And with this, we finally draw this episode to a close. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed us talk about teeth. 
If you want to learn more, there will be a blog post with pictures and links as usual. Check it out. Once again, thanks to our listeners that requested this topic. Yeah. Thanks to our new patrons for joining us. We're, we've done live chat recently. In fact, the last couple of months, we've done a ton of extra stuff. So yeah. check it all out. Go see that bonus material. Go to the Zazzle store and get yourself some cool merchandise. As usual, we release episodes every fortnight. We'll be back soon. So see you in a couple of weeks, precisely. And bye till then. Bye. Doot, 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 doot. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.